0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. You knew exactly what I was going to say. Okay, awesome. Well, Welcome back to the Café Stop. Um, we have got another great episode for you, as always. Uh, our guest today is a professional trail and mountain runner based in Bellingham, Washington. Uh, she is a La Sportiva athlete, a USATF national trail champion, uh, and a multi-time member of the U.S. mountain team. Uh, she's also a trauma-integrated, polyvagal-informed registered dietitian and nutrition therapist, which is amazing. Uh, Miss Maria Delzat, how are you doing today? Oh,
0: no, I'm doing really great. How are you guys?
1: We're good. We're good. Busy, uh, but a good. Good. Day. good. good. Yeah. yeah, thanks for taking the time to chat with us. I'm it's awesome
0: super to excited to be here.
1: Yeah, Yeah. us too. Us too, for sure. Um, and you can follow along with Maria on Instagram. She's at Maria Delzat, or you can check out uh, all the great work she does, or even schedule a time to connect and make appointments if you're interested on her website, which is uh, com yeah, everything, uh, very informative. I think you have all your info on there and you can even schedule stuff online, right?
0: Yeah, that's right. It should be pretty, um, pretty intuitive, but I'm super easy to get hold of on social media or website. Just I, communication is really important to me. So if you try to reach out, I'll get back to you. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, like when I first came across, I was, first of all, I was like, holy stuff, uh, holy crap. Just the first, uh, reaction was that like, i thought it was amazing that you paired the trauma work uh with nutrition and being a dietitian i thought that was super super cool and then like the next thing a second later was like oh my god you're doing all these crazy running races (laughs) through trails and mountains and stuff i like i i (laughs) that's i don't know i mike and i obviously do a lot more biking we've done a bit of running but uh
2: Mike, what are your thoughts on on running up mountains? (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I mean, I used to live in the British countryside. We had hills. I've, I've actually never seen a mountain in my life except from a plane, and I definitely wouldn't want to run up one. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> so uh needless to say our hats off to you in so many different respects so uh, we've been super excited to chat with you for a long time and um you you turned us on to uh your favorite uh, little store the the Mazama store is that right
0: the Mazama store yes yes that's on yeah. the um other side of it's about two hours away from us on the east side of the cascades and it's an amazing place that it's really special to us because in the winter the road closes to get there that like the direct route to get there because we get so much snow in the cascades and the oh, second wow. that the the snow melts in the spring we head over there to go to the Mazama store so it's because it's everything you get there is amazing
1: yeah i was checking it out online it looks awesome and the people there are super super nice yes. too. So yeah on instagram at the mazama store or online at the dot com, and uh, obviously we'll link everything so no worries yeah yeah um that's uh pretty incredible all the snow that you guys get there i didn't know you kind of lost access to that
0: yeah they closed uh, for you, a little bit yeah there's a route that you can take but it's like adds on three hours or so but it actually oh, wow. it's the road through the north cascades national park it's it, it goes basically straight to Mazama, the road it, you just follow it and you end up in this wow. small town where there's this amazing cafe so um it's pretty spectacular so mike if you want to see some big mountains come visit me next summer <laughs> we'll go we'll go run up a mountain and then we'll go to the Mazama store and get a salted baguette so it'll be amazing <laughs> i'm
2: thinking we send you up the three-hour route and and josh and yeah, i'll take the normal yeah. route at we'll yeah, yeah. the same okay. time <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you might even still beat us if we're both. running. Yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> um, our first question is usually uh, in cycling. We try and race to the coffee shop, and whoever gets there last has to pay. So, since you're going to beat us out there anyway, uh, what would be getting you from Um
0: Well, what I just mentioned, the, they have the most amazing baguette, and it has these big salt, salty flakes on top, and it rivals anything that i've ever got in europe and it's pretty spectacular but you have to get there at like just the right time because they sell out like that so we'll have to time it appropriately
2: (laughs) there's no promises on timing (laughs) maybe you could save us a couple yeah Yeah. you can bring them down
1: No, that's, that's awesome. Thank you so much for, for, for turning us on to that. Yeah. And uh, everyone should definitely uh, check it out. It sounds amazing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, kind of just scratching the surface, we obviously we described your, your pretty incredible background. Um, and then of course there's, there's way more to it, but um, in terms of your like athletic journey, what kind of sparked that for you? And maybe how did you get into running and then specifically into this crazy trail and mountain running and <laughs> doing that on such a high level.
0: Yeah. Running's been a part of my life for, um, I'm 34 now and I've been running competitively since I was 11. So it's been wow. a major part of my life and, uh, something that is just, uh, has become so intuitive and natural that I don't, when I think back of the orientation of it or when it all started, it's like, well, I've always, I just always run. That's just what I do. (laughs) Um, (laughs) but when I was younger, I just, I, I, it's funny that you guys are bikers because I was not even like, I just, I was scared to ride a bike when I was younger. And I remember telling everybody, well, I don't need to ride a bike. I can just run everywhere. And so wow. <laughs> I, I just, running was always my thing. I loved tag in school. And so I, I remember a family member said, oh, you should run cross country. Didn't know what it was and, um, started in, in seventh grade and I had, um, pretty immediate success with it, uh, running well and. And you know that positive feedback just kind of kept me going, and I ran through high school, and then I ran on scholarship for West Virginia University, which is an NCAA Division One um, um, school in Morgantown, West Virginia, which is where I was born and raised, and all my family is. And then, nice. um, to answer your question of how how that translated into uh, mountain altered trail running. I would get injured all the time running on the roads and on the track mm. due to the repetitive nature of the footsteps and the lack of variation and I found that when I did grass workouts I stayed a lot healthier and so my coach was very uh, gracious in that he he did what was best for each individual and so I could go off and train on the trails and grass when everyone else was on the road and on the oh, nice. track and I I just gravitated more towards that, and I didn't even know mountain running was a thing. And when I was nineteen years old, I saw that they were looking for team members to be on the junior uh, world mountain running team to represent the US. and I applied via resume um, because I had a pretty um, I had a pretty solid resume up to that point, and I was selected to be on the team for the first time as a junior when I was nineteen years old. And oh, man, wow. I was able to travel to Switzerland with the, with the senior women's team, which was extremely motivating and inspiring. And I remember saying, you know, I want to be on that team someday. And I, you know, kind of fast forward through the years, um, from that was in 2007. So from 2007 to, uh, 2019, I was on seven U S mountain running teams.
1: Holy, Yeah. <laughs> that's that's uh quite a, quite an incredible feat for sure <laughs> um and uh yeah like oh that that's an amazing story and it's funny like even in the cycling world um there's a few like pretty pretty established and well-known cyclists now that came from running mm. um like i think of mike woods and you know both mike and i spent a ton of time in ottawa and i grew up for most of my life there and that's where mike woods is from but he was uh he was a big runner and he went to Michigan on a scholarship okay. and that's why he transitioned to cycling uh, because there were so many injuries like you're saying. Mm. Um but that's super cool that you took that direction with it and turned it into all of this uh, amazing and ad- adventurous type racing and running.
3: Yeah, I appreciate it that. That sounds so
1: awesome everything you're describing. Yeah. It's uh um you know, I I can't imagine some of the the challenges that come with it both like physically and, and mentally um and like for for people that ha- aren't as in tune with what those races are like or what your training's like um could you describe for us maybe some of that type of stuff i like i i think of just running and a lot of people think of you know going for a jog or a run around the neighborhood or something like that but um you know to be out in the mountains and in these extreme conditions you have not only the physical aspect of like pushing your body to the limit that way but even psychologically it like must feel isolating sometimes and you know like it must it must be a, t- a very different beast altogether when you're doing that kind of thing
0: yeah yeah one thing i always like to make uh, explicit when i when i share my experience is that my progression has been incredibly slow like i started out with like okay. you know Whatever it was that you run in junior high, I don't. I don't even know two miles. I don't know what that is in kilometers. But, like, and then it <laughs> went, and then it went to like five k, and then ten k, and then for a long time, like when I was doing um, a lot of the um, mountain team stuff, I was running like uh, sub marathon distance, so like 25 uh, k to 30 k stuff for years and years and years. And it wasn't until Um, I think it was like 2017 that I ran my first ultra distance, which is anything above 26 miles. So I ran my first 50 kilometer run then. So um, I know some people are quick to jump into it and their bodies can handle it. Um, I was not one of those. And I honestly never felt the pressure to jump up in distance quickly. I mean... I just, it's just been a very natural progression. So, um, so right now in my career, I've just recently competed in the, uh, 100 kilometer race in Chamonix, France, which is, um, for those who are familiar in the, of the mountain trail running world, it's the sister race of the, the UTMB, which is the, one of the greatest events in the world the, the sister race oh, wow. is called the CCC, which starts okay. in, Cormier, Italy, travels through, um, champais Switzerland, and ends in Chamonix, France. And that was my first hundred kilometer race that I ran. Re- I went over, um, to Europe this past week. And so in order to train for that, it is a lot of, it was a lot of miles alone, as you said, to prepare for that mentally. I, yeah. I, I do about, um, Uh, 24 to 25 mile long runs, averaging about 90 miles a week. And so it was a lot of, it's a lot of time. It's a lot of energy. It's a lot of naps. Um, it's a lot of, uh, just monotony, just grinding. It's no, there's nothing glamorous about it. There's lots of crying. Like it's like, like it's a, it's a lot, it's a lot. Um, and there's also joys in there too. There are some glimmers there too, else we wouldn't be doing this. Right. So, (laughs) So the training is, I, I really enjoy, um, but um, there are aspects that are challenging in terms of running in the mountains. For these races, you're required to carry a significant amount of safety gear because you are alone for a lot of it. Um, so yeah. being prepared, being um, just having competence in the mountains, and I mean... You hear that phrase, the mountains don't care for a reason. You know, you have to, you have to take care of yourself enough so that you can be competent to take care of yourself when, you know, the weather changes quickly or you, you know, hurt yourself and have to assess the situation. So um, there's a lot of stuff to not take lightly. And so. Um, That's why I think it's important to not just jump into one of these events to really kind of get your feet wet with something that is more, perhaps more local, has more support around it so that you can get a feel for what it's like. Um, Yeah, I'll pause there and see if uh, if I if you have any follow ups to that.
1: Yeah, no, just like. I mean, it blows my mind <laughs> um, <laughs> all of that type of thing off the bat, but, uh, like it's super, super cool and admirable. Like I wish right now that I could do something like that, but it sounds super daunting. I like absolutely appreciate what you're saying about starting small and, and building up. Um, but you know, uh, it's, it's something that's so unique and that so many, or sorry, so few people are ever going to have the opportunity to say that they've done, yeah. um, and uh, like you do it at such a high level and like so gracefully, it's it's super cool to see. Um, I maybe maybe we'll start small. Maybe Mike and I will do like a five k yeah.
2: <laughs> or something <laughs> next week. We'll we'll get into it. I'll be your but, crew. Uh, I'll be your crew. Yeah, Don't yeah, exactly. You. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we appreciate. I think I need everything. a support car on the five k.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, just even like the physical uh ground covered like you're just explaining um and like not just on you know nice easy roads like through the mountains and all of that um from your recent race like that just sounds incredible
3: um yeah
1: and uh it it must just be like such a unique experience and like so much time to you know be, be with yourself and work through things in your head and it must like enable maybe such a deep admiration and per, like change in perspective about the world and where you've been in different places and people. How, how do you feel about all that?
0: Yeah, uh, I do want to say that being able to do this comes with an immense amount of privilege to be able to travel to these places, have the resources, mm-hmm. have the support. And so I just want to fully acknowledge all the privilege that I hold in, in the position that I'm in. I have a, a husband who is extremely passionate about running as well and is a um, talented photographer and like crew extraordinaire who takes care of me during these races. If anybody is interested on my Instagram, my husband is the one who takes all the pictures and videos and, uh, he does Instagram takeovers for all my races. So you can see the behind the scenes of what it's like to be a crew member for these long races where we come in and, and, you know, change shoes and eat and then leave or whatever happens. But, um, So there's a lot, uh, you know, I have a job that allows me to have the flexibility to train in the mornings and work in the evenings. And so there's a lot that uh, I have support. (laughs) Gosh, that's from La Sportiva. I get shoes and the gear and um, certain, uh, and other sponsors like Ultimate Direction that provide for me a lot of gear to make this possible. So I do wanna make that really explicit to everybody involved, the support that I received to help make this possible. Um, and I'm really grateful for all of that. Um, to answer your question, it's it's like spending all that time um, alone heightens the what it's like to finally be with people again. <laughs> so for example, when you are <laughs> running and kind of suffering and in pain, when you come across another human being, it doesn't matter if you know them or not, it is the most like uplifting <laughs> like just like soul like just enriching thing because you're you're seeing another human and they're right there with you either in the race kind of commiserating yeah. with you or, or you know you see somebody who's there to support you and help you and it just um, if you ever lose faith in humanity, go and volunteer at a trail race and, and it will make you feel better about the state of the world because it is, it is, uh, while, while you're running out there alone, you're certainly not doing it alone. And there are people, strangers who are willing to like, you know, clean your dirty feet and hold your hair back when you puke and like do all these things that are so selfless. It's amazing.
1: Wow. Sounds I like mean a good night out too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love how casually you said that too just as if yeah. you know, that's something that happens like it's going to happen. I was reminding much, me. So. Of, yeah, oh, it's yeah. a, not a
0: matter of of if it's when. It's definitely <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah.
1: Just absolute limits reached like physically and mentally. Um yeah, I can't imagine. That's it's crazy. Um Like I've done a a little bit of looking into ultra distance races just in terms of cycling. Yeah. Um, And those seem super cool to me. Um, I don't know how I feel about the ultra running, but... I mean, maybe, maybe, uh, we could see, I mean, there must be some crossover, but
0: yeah. I mean, and the yeah. thing about it is, is let's be real. It's not all running. We're not running all these miles like there. It's like, there's a lot of hiking. There's a lot of walking. There's a lot of napping, yeah. like there's sleeping. Yeah. There's like moments of just, you know, just, I need to a break for a second. So the cool yeah. thing about it, about these long events is that there's, there's so much room and time to problem solve and that was the biggest thing that i learned going from the shorter distance where everything is urgent and chaos and every second matters and to oh man i can stop and take a nap here and i still have time to finish and you know and like yeah. <laughs> do fairly well like it's it's amazing it's amazing the just the um the flexibility and just the uh the room that you have to problem solve with these events
2: Wow. You've mentioned the distance quite a few times. Is there actually? Are you actually napping during these the races? Um, and, yeah, people, and like where?
0: Yeah, for people who do. So I have not run a hundred mile race. Um, there's a, lots, and lots of people do. The people who do hundred mile races, two hundred mile races, they have um, crew where they maybe they stop at an aid station and they take a nap for twenty minutes. Um, when I ran uh, the CCC over in UTMB, they gave me a little. Um, uh, like placard to put on my pack and it says, do not disturb. I'm sleeping to put on your pack. <laughs> if, you, if you're like on the side of the trail, so people don't think you're yep. hurt. You put it on oh, your pack okay. to say, I'm just napping because sometimes yeah. people feel so sick. They can't go on. But if you just stop and rest a bit, um, it happened to me. Uh, I was at Mont Blanc and I was running a marathon and three miles from the finish. I got pulled because I, I was like, like bananas, like I didn't know where I was and <laughs> I the, I uh they wrapped me up in one of those space blankets and gave me tea and I I napped oh, for like geez. an hour and got up and I'm like, Oh I feel better. I think I'm gonna finish <laughs> and <laughs> off I went and um and it's not unusual. It's not unusual and, and wow. it gets more and more um commonplace the longer the distance. So for people who do the wow. two hundred mile races that happens over like six days. So they have sleeping yeah. stations.
2: Mm. I was going wow. to ask how long, like a, a hundred, because I can visualize a hundred miles as a bike ride. Mm. I, I have yeah. no idea what that looks like as a <laughs> yeah, as a and r- that's a race. long bike ride at that. Like, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> a hundred mile uh, running race. I, a kind of a good just something in your head is 24 hours. Like 24 hours. Okay. Like if you finish under 24 hours, I think you get a a certain you get like a special buckle. I don't know. I don't. I don't know enough about the hundred mile distance because I've not done it.
1: <laughs> wow. I, yeah, this is incredible. Thank you for filling us in
2: <laughs> course. On, on all of that. Thanks this.
0: for your curiosity. <laughs> um,
2: you, you've mentioned a, a few times about that being the members of the U.S. ATF mountain ultra and trail riding team. Um, how do you, how do you get involved in that? Uh, what's the process? What's it like to compete with the races for those teams?
0: Yeah. So I feel, um. I know I'm. I know I'm young. i 34 years old. I know I'm. By I'm not calling myself old at all, but I feel old in the sport because I was 19 when I started with with that particular organization, and it was at a time when um, the sport really hasn't taken off yet. And when I was on the junior team, I became really close with um, the people that were in charge, and I was on the. Um, the board for a long time as secretary of the mountain ultra trail committee and so i was it was it was a really it was only till recently that it started to grow but it's a really small community of people and i just kind of kept my foot in the door and ran um races that built up my resume to be selected to be on on those teams but it doesn't matter how many times you 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 have the you earn the, your spot on the team there's something very very magical about getting to put on the olympic jersey you get the complete olympic outfit and it's like christmas day to open it all up and try it on and it, there's something very magical about it and what an honor it is to go and represent your country in in a way that, you know, is authentic to you and in alignment with you, because people have, you know, preconceived notions about certain things and, you know, political stuff gets in the way. And especially over the past couple of years, blah, blah, blah. And it can kind of make you nervous to travel. But when you go and, you know, don the jersey and tell people where you are, everybody is so kind and gracious and you get to offer that back in return. And again, it just really um, it really fills my soul and restores my faith in humanity
1: awesome. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, uh, it has been, an, uh, maybe a tough time in terms of some things, but that's super encouraging to hear. And I think, uh, that's a message that everyone should hold on to is that there is a lot of reason to have hope, I think. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's, that's awesome that you, like you said, you get to do something that is so meaningful and, you know, you're so aligned with. Um, it, that's, it's such, must be such an amazing experience. And, uh, yeah, that's, it's very, very inspiring.
0: Yeah. I appreciate that. And again, just, I, I'm there, there, there are memories that I definitely hold close to my heart and, and cherish. And I, I let them, I let them land over and over again because, and savor them because they're, they're very meaningful.
1: Yeah no that's that's awesome as you should um yeah so and even um like i was reading uh your kind of top five race rituals as well um and uh it, like it's interesting to me i've done a lot of like studying about rituals and, and mental health and all of that sort of thing but i want to say i i really appreciate the five that you outlined and how um, they're definitely ones that are positive and not likely to have a detrimental effect so that's great. Um, and an awesome message for people who, who are taking that into, um, like you said, like checking things out before traveling, um, you know, laying all out, laying your kit all out in gear a week before, um, pre-opening nutrition when it's going to be a cold day. That's something like I never even thought of that would, uh, probably be a good thing even in the cycling world. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, uh, studying, uh, the race course intently prior to race day for sure as well. Um. And then uh, your race kit and your carry-on if you're flying, so you don't get uh, held up if it gets lost or you have to wear something else. Yeah. Which is kind of um, ironic
0: because that happened to me when I went to Europe this summer, but they, cause they took my, okay. they took my carry-on.
1: <laughs> so oh they, no. So I know. So when they
0: take your carry-on, then, then there's nothing you can do. But I had to laugh when, yeah. when you said that, because I, like, they, when they take your carry-on, it's just kind of shit out of luck. But it, my, my, yeah. my, my, luggage did eventually arrive. <laughs>
1: that's good that's good you had it all set up before the race yeah yeah nice nice um and yeah it's it's always been interesting to me like i think those like i said great advice for anyone those things and you definitely you've expanded more on that as well which is awesome um and in terms of being prepared um it can definitely ease anxiety for sure and trying to have some control uh over the race definitely eases anxiety um I always thought like from a mental health perspective it's interesting to me because some ritualistic behavior like that can turn into stuff that's detrimental and I know like athletes in general probably have a lot more rituals than most people Um, but it it can be detrimental if you're getting you know like uh, to a point of you know being too reliant on things or um, you know uh, counting to arbitrary numbers that sort of thing and so uh, but I've even seen that kind of praise from like, you know, a sports psych perspective, which is is interesting to me that in one realm, like in the area of sport, it's seen as like a a positive thing and like hmm. you should have your rituals and always go through and do the same thing. Hmm. But in from a real world experience, you know, hey. we would kind of label that as obsessive compulsive behavior, which uh, is super interesting. But anyways, I just wanted to praise, like I said, the way that you lined it up um was was perfect and I think uh it 's something that it just speaks to preparedness like more than like ritualistic behavior which is right. uh a very positive thing, and everyone can deal with that but uh yeah it just uh it, it always when i see the the rituals type of explanation i 'm always kind of skeptical because of the yeah. work i 've done but right. uh, i'm
0: i'm, I'm going to agree with you on that like it's interesting yeah. like i'm i 'm always of the You know, let's move more towards flexibility flexibility than rigidity, right? And not hold so tightly to things that are, you know, I mean, especially in there are so many factors that you can't control in sporting events from the weather to your competitors to travel. Like there's just so much there that are beyond your control. Like if you're clinging so tightly to these rituals, um, I I mean, it's not a setup for success 100% of the time.
1: Yeah, exactly. And as I said, I think you're so wise in like everything that you had described, you can control the vast majority of that other than your, your carry on, being taken, <laughs> right. like we just said. Um, but, uh, it, it, like I just, I, like I said, I was skeptical when I see that. And then I read yeah. everything that you wrote and I thought it was beautifully done and Thank something you. that, um, you know that anyone could take in and and have that be some really good direction but on top of that like you're saying as well it, it doesn't seem like anything that would lead to that rigidity which i think is such an important message for athletes to to hear as well um just like you said uh if you're too rigid that can actually have a detrimental detrimental effect on you know mental health but also like performance even so it's going to have the exact opposite effect of what you're trying to accomplish anyways within Damn. sport um, and then has the potential to carry over into your life as well and then continue to have a negative effect, which is, you know, obviously not what we want it for anyone. So, no, I, I just wanted to praise you on your, your awesome uh, you, <laughs> rituals and that you set up. I think uh, I think that's uh, very, very well done. Um, and even, um, you know, if you're talking about getting stuck on certain things, being too rigid, too. um like people turn to that to lower anxiety uh to focus on things that they control to make them feel better and ease tension and anxiousness um, and sometimes I've seen that people you know food, for example, being one of the only things that they can control and one of the only things they can rely on to make them feel better mm-hmm. um, and that must be something uh that you've come across in your work as a dietitian as well,
3: yeah.
0: All the time. All the time. Um, uh, I work with people who either are in active eating disorder recovery or who engage in disordered eating behavior or who have chronically dieted their entire life and are just over the hustle. They're tired of the rumination and the preoccupation with food and are just ready for something different. And um, they're... There's definitely a role that, that food plays in being something that we can control, but I always, my perspective with this, and I, I have a feeling you'll ask me some follow-up questions around this, but I just want to say when we're talking about food being something that we can control and something that makes us feel better, I look at that coping strategy with um, coming from a place of so much wisdom and respect and, and how you know, I, there's usually when people meet with me, there is so much shame around their eating behaviors, the thoughts around their bodies, the stories that they have about themselves, there's shame, there's blame, there's guilt, there's resentment, there's grief, there's all this stuff around it. And so when we can start looking at our behaviors from a place of wisdom and curiosity and, and, um, uh, uh, preserving of the self rather than self-sabotage it starts to remove some of that shame and so I always look at these mechanisms with the utmost respect and um and as just so wise and intelligent even though they may not be something that we want to be using for the long term there's no shame or blame that is that that is necessary it's understandable but it's not necessary to feel these things around food
1: and that's so profound and i think that's something again that everyone needs to hear because it's uh you know there is so much stigmatization and um you know in terms of like what you eat and then mm-hmm. uh, also body image like you're talking about and you know even in the world of like endurance sport uh running swimming triathlon cycling obviously um high prevalence of, of eating disorders in there or disordered eating behavior um uh, and diet as well mm-hmm. um so you no know, i like the work that you're doing is just so incredible i think and um you know you said what most people think of when they think of a dietitian right is those meal plans and fo- food rules diets which uh, all of that just breeds just a lot more neg- negativity so yeah. you said your approach is different which I think is the absolute right thing and what everybody should be doing mm-hmm, um, and you're a non-diet dietitian and focus on health at every size um, and you want to set people up for lifelong physical and mental health and um, like you could not possibly i think get uh, a better like mission statement goal um whatever you want to call it that's like it's so awesome to see those words uh, and that you put that out there and do such incredible work that way
0: well, thank you it's i i appreciate you saying that and it's um such a privilege to do this work and it's something i'm incredibly passionate about and i I I truly love, I love what I do and I love, I love my clients and they've been some of my, the most amazing teachers to me. And I'm, I'm grateful for each and every one of them.
1: Wow. Wow. Well, I'm sure they're uh, incredibly lucky to have you as part of their journey uh, as well. Thank you. Yeah. Um, It's funny too, looking, um, looking at the big picture, right? Like, like people don't focus on the connection between you know uh, cognition and your eating habits and that sort of stuff but like who knew that your thoughts were and your feelings were connected to what you eat right like yeah. <laughs> it just seems like it should be common sense but it's not really something that's focused on as much as it should be uh like nearly at all right so uh yeah I, that's why i think it's, it's just so so important
0: yeah. Yeah. And I want to mention like my, you know, I say my approach is different. I don't do meal plans and I don't, you know, I don't do what people think of, of when they see a dietitian. and I have clarity calls to make this explicit right up front. Again, I, communication is really important to me. And, um, I think people need, uh, context. I, I instead look at, The deeper stuff, the hard stuff, the stuff that nobody wants to talk about, like, you know, why we're, why we're reaching for food or why it feels like, you know like something I get all the time is, Oh, I know what I should be doing. I know what I should be eating, but I just can't stop, or I just can't do it or I just can't stick with it. And I just can't, you know, I just can't, can't, but blah, blah, blah. Like, and I'm like, yeah, you, you know, you probably know more than me. You probably know what you you, quote unquote should be eating and more than me. Um, if this was a cognitive thing, if this was something that you could think your way out of, you would have done it by now. And what I mean by that is this is not, um, um, Eating disorders or disordered eating behavior is your body on a on a fear setting, and when your body is feeling any type of threat, no amount of thinking can think your way out of feeling scared, and so I you know. I always tell people, well, of course, you know, how if you're being chased by a tiger, are you gonna know if you want a salad or a ham sandwich? Like you're gonna be like, I need yeah. to get the hell out of here. I don't <laughs> care about a salad or a ham sandwich. And that's exactly yeah. what's happening when you are experiencing some type of 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 threat or fear of any sort, which is what happens when somebody has an eating disorder or disordered eating behavior. And I'm going to take it a step further and say um, research shows that over 75% of people who have eating disorders have experienced something traumatic in their life, which is going to impact how they ingest and digest food. And I would argue and say that, well, I'm going to just look at my clients, and I would say 100% of the people that I work with have an ACE score, which is um, uh, adverse childhood experiences. So there's a score of one or more hundred percent of them. And so they come to me with like, what's wrong with me? Why do I do this? Why can't I stop? Why do I do this? And, you know, again, try, trying to reduce that shame and blame, like, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing broken about you. There's nothing weak about you. There's nothing, you know, people are like, I'm at the point of no return. And when we start looking at, you know, what what becomes so patholo- pathological is competence, um, and start asking, not what's wrong with you, but what happened to you to make you need mm-hmm. to do this. It just, it just radically changes the entire, uh, it's just the entire paradigm and how they look at themselves, how they treat themselves. And it's incredibly profound.
1: Wow. Yeah. It's like, that's that like ma- massive shift in perspective by just like rephrasing that in one simple little way. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. so so powerful but um so important that's that's incredible you must see like it must be very rewarding to see people make that connection
0: it's incredible um, like it's in like some, this sounds possibly dramatic, but I mean it like some, there's some, I mean, some days I feel like I can't tie my shoes or say my name, you know how it is. Like some days I'm like, I know yeah. nothing. I've forgotten everything. Yeah. I know nothing. And then there are other days and I'm like, you know, I could die today. And I'd be like, okay, <laughs> you've done you've done good work. You've left, you've yeah. done good work. You can, that's it now. I've re- <laughs> <Yeah.
1: laughs> Yes. No, um, no, that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah and just like looking at it from that lens is just so powerful um because you know i i i didn't know that the correlation was that high with eating disorders um i knew it must be high but uh, obviously this is your area of expertise um but that's super super interesting and um the fact that you brought up the ace score as well the adverse childhood experience score um I I've done the done it myself a few times but I think I was at a 4 or 5. Um but uh it's just like super interesting that connection between like I I really appreciate how you said it's um you're praising people because it's a creative way to cope um you know when you've been through some traumatic things, right? Um and a way to make yourself feel better and cuz everybody like we have to survive, right? It just speaks to the human desire to move forward and uh, speaks to people's strengths. And uh, I like how you phrase everything, like really brings out that people are smart and resilient and have strength. And we're just using that as a way to get by. That's really cool.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And if you think about it, like a lot of these behaviors, they begin, um, you know, a lot of food, food ruptures happen in relationships. So we're talking about a lot of relational trauma, we're talking about developmental trauma that happens in childhood. And if you think about as a kid, it's not like you can say "peace out, mom and dad." I'm gonna take the car keys yeah. and drive away, or <laughs> I'm gonna, you know, yeah. get into the liquor cabinet or find access to drugs. I mean, you know, there's exceptions to everything, and that you know, some people might find access to that, but for the most part, food is there. Food is accessible. Mm-hmm. Food is something that is is at their disposal. And the thing about it is, is it's effective. It works. When we eat yeah. food, there is, um, there's a, um, a sense of connection that we feel it's not, it's not, that can be similar to the connection we feel with another person. And so if what we want is safety with another person, but we can't get that because it's too dangerous. Well, food is a phenomenal replacement for it. And that's why yeah. it's incredible. It's incredible that this kid found a way to get what they needed in an unsafe yeah. environment
2: yeah it's almost like you're able to look after yourself
0: yes exactly exactly it's incredible it's incredible
1: yeah yeah when we're when you're born nobody can choose who their parents are and you have to adapt to your environment and you you're striving for those connections and if you don't get that you have to find it elsewhere
0: that's right that's
1: right that's right wow wow and just on that note too like um you know even to take it a step further, you've done a lot of work, um, in terms of polyvagal theory, Mm -hmm. um, which is, you know, talking about the vagus nerve or the vagal nerves. Um, and you can certainly explain that, uh, much better. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I loved, uh, your wording when we were chatting about it a minute ago, uh, before we started everything here, but, um, essentially just the polyvagal theory is talking about your um, you know your parasympathetic parasympathetic nervous system and your body's autonomic nervous system which that is a part of and its connection to um, you know everything that your body just does automatically in those mm-hmm. processes um, but it's such a huge relationship with that and trauma and people's elevated level of stress and feeling unsafe mm-hmm. um, but yeah if, if you don't mind maybe uh, diving into that and your work with that, and and what that's all about for us, that'd be yeah. awesome.
0: I've um, polyvagal theory is like my bread and butter. It's been the foundation of my work for a long time because it's it's a really um, applicable way. In my experience, when when I start talking to clients about it, it 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 brings to light their experiences. It provides a language for them that they can start talking about um, you know, what it feels like for them. And I'll, I'll back up and say, for those of you who, who are unacquainted with polyvagal theory, it was developed by Stephen Porges. And, um, essentially it's the, um, I mean, he calls it the science of uh, trust, connection, and safety. And basically, um, it brings to light that we all have nervous systems that are attuned to what is safe and unsafe in our life from you know we have we have something that's happening below our conscious awareness and when he calls this term neuroception it's happening below our conscious awareness but four times a second we are assessing safety we are assessing safety in our bodies via our heart rate our temperature um our our you know our interoceptive awareness we're we're assessing for safety relationally. So as, you know, Josh and Mike, you're talking to me, your nervous system is is going, is Maria safe? Is Maria safe? Is Maria safe? Are we like, are we good? Are we good? Can I stay here? Constantly. And mine is doing the same. We are also assessing safety within our environment. And so this is all going on all the time. And so if, and how this, um, become shaped is by our environments and the relationships that we're in so if we grew up in an environment that was unsafe or were around unsafe caregivers or other people in our life we're going to have a nervous system that is highly adapted highly sensitive to any type of stressor that is triggering to some if something feels familiar to the past your system is going to be like oh my gosh, we got to get out of here or we need to make ourselves smaller and shut down and and disappear before we get hurt. And so um, the way that I, the model that I use that helps explain this to people, and I've played around with a couple different things, but what I found to be most helpful is I use uh, Dan Siegel's model of the window of tolerance. Um, That's been really effective. And I combine that with the beautiful work of Deb Dana, who um, has written a couple books with Steve Porges on polyvagal theory. But together, their work has been uh, has made a profound impact on the way that I teach clients how to navigate and understand their nervous system, because it can feel very like. Well, if I don't, you know, if this is happening below conscious awareness, I have no control over this. What am I going to do about it, right? We don't come with like a, a manual for how to navigate our nervous system, and so this model using the window of tolerance is a way to understand our own nervous system. And and uh, would you like me to briefly explain what it, what, what the model Absolutely. is? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So um, basically, the window of tolerance is the optimum arousal zone. So this is the zone where you feel like you can, um, be calm, but not tired, alert, but not anxious. You have the ability to problem solve. You feel connected with other people. You're able to communicate. Um, you're able to eat normatively. You're able to assess accurately hunger and fullness levels. You're able to know what you need, which is a big one. I talk about that with clients all the time. Um, this This is the place where all that happens. And what happens with the people that I speak with is their window is very, very narrow or non-existent. And so if your window is very, very narrow, you're not going to have much of a landing pad. You're not going to have a lot of place, a lot of wiggle room of feeling safe in your body. And so if you're not in your window, where are you? You're either above it or you're below it. And above it, you're in the zone of hyperarousal, or otherwise known as the more um, common fight or flight. This is hypermobilized. This can show up as um, increase in blood pressure, increase in heart rate. Um, It shows up, uh, it can show up as rebellious behaviors, intrusive imagery. it can show up as fixing. I gotta fix this. I got. How do I fix this? Tell me how to fix this. I get clients that are like, "Tell me how to fix this," and then, you know, I'm like, "Oh well, they're you know, they're not in their window first. They're you know, freaking out because there's too much threat. There. There's too much fear. Um, it could be obsessive thoughts. It could be in- intellectualizing too much in your head, and it could be um, OCD behaviors. These are all examples of fight or flight behavior." And what happens is, is this fight or flight is only meant for us as humans. We're only meant to use that for about 30 seconds or so. You either fight the person or you run away. And if the threat is still there, what happens or the threat is too big. And in the case of like real life, because we're, you know, hopefully not fighting off people all the time or animals,
3: but <laughs>
0: when the threat is still there, and this could be chronic stress, that could, this could be, um, abusive relationships. This could be kids that can't get away. This could be, you know, a constant threat of diet culture and not being safe in your bodies. We go to this place of shutdown or hypo arousal, and this is below the window and. This can be where uh, people feel spacey or numb. They feel disconnected from their body. They feel disconnected from other people. Um, No emotion can be expressed here. It's very hard. There's a very flat affect here. Um, It it could be... um, it can show up as impaired memory, uh, poor boundary setting, and inability to say no. This is also where people pleasing is. Because if you think about it, oh, if I just say yes to everything or do whatever this person wants, maybe they'll leave me alone. So boundaries are often crossed in this place. Um, and then in most extreme examples, this, it could be a complete dissociative, uh, uh, dissociation response or shutdown. So, um, so when I meet with people, when I talk about this, they, oh, I'm there that's me like I'm right there this is where I am and it's really cool because what we then begin to do is start mapping where their nervous system goes where are you when you're eating oh well I'm like in this fight-or-flight and so again if you're being chased by a bear how can you tell what you want to eat well you can't of course so how can we bring enough safety to your system so that you're in your window so that you can accurately interpret hunger and fullness or how can we bring you back to this planet So you could even feel hunger and know what you want or what you need, because oftentimes people are shut down all the time, they don't know what they need, because they can't feel around or it's not safe enough to ask. but it's a really cool model, and then um, and people get really creative with it. If you can tell, I get really excited about this. So just yeah, no, kind of cut awesome. me off if I'm talking <laughs> no, too no, much. No, 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 um, no. The, the last thing I'll say about it, though, is it's really cool because people start creating their landscapes for each place. Their fight or flight becomes, um, a tree limb, like I'm hanging off a tree limb and it's going to break any second, or it becomes a crevasse. Or someone said it felt like New York city when it's just all this chaos. And I, I, I'm trying to move forward, but I'm not getting anywhere. And, um, other people describe it as a tightrope and, um, and then their, their zone of, of hypo arousal or shutdown disconnect, it could be the bottom of the ocean floor, or it could be like this. Um, I don't, I've not seen the movie, so I don't know, but maybe someone else has that movie inside out. There's like a scene where there's like uh. no, there's like no ceiling or no floor. And so yeah. it's like sensory yeah. deprivation because yeah. it's very isolating and it's, it, people feel like there's, you know, they're all alone and it's a very, very hopeless and a dark place to be. And then their window of tolerance, their window of safety, it could be a sunset, it could be the beach, it's some like visceral memory that brings the sensation, like warm, you know, safe sensation. So people make it their own and now they have a language. Now they can show up and be Mm -hmm. like, oh man, I've been hanging out on the tightrope. I can't, I can't get back, you know, to the, see the sunset and like, okay. And then how can we get back there? Because if you're not in your window of tolerance, you're not, you're not going to have the cognitive capacity to do the work, to make any changes. So there's no point in like telling people what to do or like giving them meal plans if they're on a fear setting, because they're not going to be able to take that in.
1: No, absolutely. And such important uh, and helpful information. I feel like Uh, People that aren't focusing on that type of thing are completely missing the boat Uh, Like you said our our bodies and I tell clients this all the time too. like from a physiological perspective Like our bodies don't know the difference They don't know if you're just seen a bear or you're in a life-threatening situation like that Those chronic stressors are doing the exact same thing to your body Um, and of course, how can you make you know, uh, like uh, healthier decisions or, or eat better uh when you know you're in that state of mind it just it seems like it's impossible and the work anybody would be doing outside of focusing on that is just uh completely pointless like you can't really take it in or you can't follow through on those actions if you're That's right. if you're in an elevated straight state of stress and anxiety That's right. it just seems like once you come around to that it's like why is anybody doing anything other than this you know like,
0: hey, i I appreciate you yeah. saying that i I think that all the time but hey. yeah
1: <laughs> no it, it's great that's why I said like as soon as I saw you and your work, I was like, this is so amazing yeah, um but yeah yeah super super cool thank you for such uh profound uh knowledge and insight there um even like the people that you're describing like your clients that you work with um you know, just knowing all of this information for them and, and for them having some insight into the trauma response and why they're elevated and all that sort of thing. um, I think that's like half the battle just, you know, because this yes. is all stuff that you're saying is, is subconscious and people don't realize this happens, but it's so much easier to tap into it once you have that language And once you know what's going on with your body, like you're able to more easily recognize those things and rectify the issues too. Yeah,
0: that's right. That's right. And if you think about all the messages that we're getting about, oh, eat healthier, just do this, just do that. I mean, even when I like say it just to you, it like makes me nervous. Like, you know, first of all, no one likes to be told what to do and then it can feel (laughs) very urgent. So I always say you can't scare people out of being afraid. Like you can't make someone do these things and it just makes, it just makes things worse
1: yeah and i
0: see it all the time i see it all the
1: time it's it reminds me of um you know if people have an anxiety disorder or they're highly anxious and then people say oh just relax i know know? yeah
0: just calm down just calm down
1: like like people didn't think of that or like people didn't think of you know oh i should just eat healthier that's the solution you know um like it's so surface and does not address anything and is actually not helpful <laughs> right. at all. Right. Um, it's actually harmful
0: yeah. because it just adds yeah. on to the shame. It just piles on the exactly. shame. I'm not working hard yeah. enough. I don't have enough willpower. Yeah. It's all my fault. see it all yeah. the time.
1: Yeah, totally. Um, yeah, no. So that's like, this is just incredible. I I love the work you do. And Thank this you, is uh, amazing to have that, uh, have your perspective on all this. Um, like we're just saying, even when we look at physiological perspectives um you know like why does some food make us feel good like we talked a little a few minutes ago about it being very effective in making us feel good um what, what's going on like we hear terms like comfort food and like people eating their emotions or those sorts of things Yeah, um, yeah. So what's going on there and like how is trauma linked to this as well?
0: So we can we can even go back to that that vagus nerve and when that vagus nerve is stimulated it, it's stimulating um, our, our ventral vagus which is that if we're going back to our window model, that's the window of safety That's optimum arousal and so um, The effect of chewing actually stimulates the ventral vagus, so there's a sense of being connected and safely connected when we're chewing and so if you think about it that's why it feels really comforting to eat popcorn when you're watching a movie or some people bite their nails or whatever but mm-hmm. um certain textures mm-hmm. can feel really comforting um that's that's and even
1: chewing gum exactly sorry. yeah you know, but like but yeah. yeah and chewing gum can you know even i remember taking like psychology and i have a psychology degree from my undergrad but there was a whole section on chewing gum making you recall things better okay um, yeah
0: yeah yeah but so, must
1: be linked to like your your memories better because you're not it it helps Put you back in that window like you're saying though
0: yeah i would just not just your memories but just your your neocortex like you're just feeling yeah. enough safety right to have to be able to yeah. recall that's why people mm-hmm. can study 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 and then they get really scared during a test mm-hmm. and they can't remember anything because again their primitive brain takes over they don't have access yes. to their prefrontal cortex because they're out of their window so anything yeah. that can bring us back you're going to have better cognitive capacity so mm-hmm. i appreciate you bringing that up so that's good.
2: There's no wonder nicotine gum is uh, quite, as, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> quite as addicting yeah, as it yeah. is. Yeah. Like, if they they stuck a bit of caffeine in there as well, yeah. I think they never no. would.
1: Oh. I
0: think you're on to something, Mike.
2: <laughs> yeah. It's all about balance, right, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> <Just saying. laughs> I'm making my own product over yeah. here. <laughs>
3: Oh
0: gosh. So, so yeah, so that's kind of what's happening physiologically. And also I just want to go back. You mentioned like, how does this connected to trauma again? If you're missing this lack of connection or a lack of attunement or, um, or attachment that we all need, it is, it is what we need. And, and for a kid, like attachment is, is, is like, if you don't have attachment, that's, that's a death sentence really. And so we're looking for something that will help fulfill that need. And so um, something I always say is you can never have enough pretzels to quench your thirst. People reach for food because they're wanting something, they're needing something, but they can't get for what they need. If what they need is human connection, but their experience with relationships is that I get disappointed, I get hurt, I get let down, I get abandoned. They're not going to do that. It's too scary. So food is a safe way to feel that sense of connection that we all need and we all strive to to have. And that's why talking about um, the effects of trauma, because trauma is what happens in our body. It's not the event itself. It's it's its impact on our body is so important because it's going to again affect the decisions that we make. And um, and if we can begin to look at it like again, from that place of respect, like, wow, you found this thing that is getting you what you need is great. But how about we talk about what it is that you really need and how do we get there? And so, so that a lot of my work is around feelings and needs, which makes people very uncomfortable and, uh, sometimes dysregulated. Um, but it's so important because, if you grew up in an environment where your needs were too much, or you felt like if you asked for what you needed, you would, you were going to get hurt. You're never going to be able to take care of yourself because you're never going to get what you need. And so it's so, so important to talk about.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And something that, uh, like we've kind of said, people tend to skirt around and just not focus on the actual issues and you know ending up being stuff that's that's not helpful at all anyways
0: (laughs) right right right
1: right yeah no that's uh super super great insight um and i know we're talking about like you know you do some great trauma work um and you have clearly this incredible knowledge um I, I know that it's a deeper type of work and you're really getting at those underlying issues, um, which must be heavy as well at times for you. Um, but is there any sort of, for, for people that are listening to this and for people that might completely identify with everything you're saying and they, they reach for unhealthy things or sugar, or any type of stuff like that for, for to get that feeling. Um, is there any, Uh, guidance or quick tips uh, that you could help people or any common issues you notice or anything like that
0: so but i first want to be um bring a lot of compassion around you know when people are reaching for for sugar quote-unquote unhealthy foods or whatever like removing the shame from this because you know we're all human and sometimes we want that and like end a story like mm-hmm. that's fine like whatever yeah. <laughs> and if you need food to feel better like do it whatever like i am not here i think um where a lot of and this i'm gonna not i'm gonna try not to go off on a tangent but i just want to say when people go to eating disorder clinics or inpatient facilities their resource gets taken away and before anything else replaces it so the, what makes them feel safe enough gets taken away and then they're just kind of flooded with all these threat responses and fears and they're expected to get better and so right, right. I'm here to say I don't you don't have to take away anything you go to your food you do your binges you do your whatever um, we're here to bring on more safety on board so that the food isn't the only thing that brings a sense of 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 okayness or safe enough to you. Um, because again, food is a very effective resource and there's no shame around using that. Um, and for people that feel like um, there's a sense of oh I don't have control over this this is happening you know all the time, when, then let's get curious about it. Then it's for a reason, right? There's something, there's something there. Let's like c- can we get curious about it? Can we ask some questions? And something that I kind of um, prompt people with all the time is what's missing? What's missing right now? What's not enough? What need isn't getting met? And oftentimes I think that's where having help. Uh, is is um, helpful because people don't know what they need they don't know because it's never been safe to have needs you know I have people that are yeah. like oh if you have food shelter and and clothes then that's all you need anything else is just yeah. a bonus <laughs> anything else is just you know kind of icing on the cake and you shouldn't need it but it's great if you have it so that's a yeah. lot of what I'm working with is oh actually you have like this whole other laundry list of needs that we're just completely ignoring right now so that was a very long-winded answer but just to say like it's okay and to perhaps be curious about it is there something that you're missing is there something that you need and if you need help exploring that then finding a um a, a clinician who is equipped to help you would be my advice
1: Yeah. awesome awesome yeah very very good direction there um and yeah the another like you, you you know we talked a little while ago about diets and that must be a huge um, like a huge battle for somebody in your position to try to work against diet culture and the way that things yeah. have been over the last you know uh, 50 years or so uh, at least and i think from what like this is again it's not my area of expertise is yours uh but from the little bit of research i've tried to do it seems like um yeah most if not almost every diet kind of um it works temporarily and then in the long run people gain the weight back is that the overwhelming uh, evidence that we see
0: yeah um i'm going to be a little cheeky here if it works temporarily does it work
1: I like that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Very, very very solid point. Very solid. Um,
2: Um, So true though. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: No, they don't work. They don't work. I mean, for maybe less than 5% of people, it quote unquote works. Um, But there is no empirical evidence that dieting works to keep weight off. And, and ultimately it makes physical and mental health worse. And so I cannot ethically, morally suggest any type of diet without going against my principles and my
1: values yeah yeah and that's that's so great like i've said multiple times i I think you're doing exactly what everyone in in your profession should be doing thank you um yeah and uh even just in terms of dieting like you are just adding to putting your body in that fight-or-flight
2: uh constant stress state
0: that's right that's (laughs) right it just compounds the problem that's right that's right nailed (laughs) it exactly yeah
2: yeah. There's but, something really toxic about putting your mindset in the form of dieting as well, rather than the fact that you're just eating properly. And when I say properly, it, in the way that you're looking after your body, with all the needs put in place. Exactly. And I think that's that's the problem, is when people start dieting in a way that they're cutting specific things out. Um, that might make them happy that they can have in moderation. That's when things get really tricky. Yeah,
0: yeah,
2: yeah. Yeah, even the wording
1: and the language that we use kind of directs that and how we feel about it too like people always say like they're having a cheat day or a cheat meal that kind of thing right and yeah. that can just set things up in your head like this isn't what i should be doing you know
0: right oh uh, and then oh it just it, first of all i cringe like when you say cheat day oh like, <laughs> why are we still saying that yeah Gross. i know um yeah. It just, what comes up for me is like the shame, right? The shame that people would feel, oh, I'm doing something wrong or, I'm, or I yeah. have to hide and this it, and not let anybody yeah. know and it keeps people yeah. fearful.
1: Yeah, or you're not allowed to do it. Like that's what it implies, right? Right. You're yeah. not he's, allowed to do it regularly. You've broken
0: a rule, so you're bad. Where, how how yeah. old is that? <laughs> oh, that sounds exactly. familiar, right? So yeah. it's just it's yeah. just so turbulent, yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And it must be, uh, obviously, create a big, uh uphill battle for you in terms of your work uh between that and you know just a ton of misinformation out uh, out there around you know dieting and weight loss um but yet like that whole uh industry seems to be you know still thriving and all the misinformation seems to be so prevalent yeah um and like what are some things people like can be cautious of in terms like when they see those things uh, or when they come across stuff on social media like that or in stores or advertisements um, how can we better avoid misinformation
0: yeah uh, I don't think uh, I mean there's only so much you can do to avoid it it's becoming more savvy about it um, but I um, oh I lost my train of thought when you were saying that I um, Oh, I remember what it was. Um, nutrition isn't sexy. It's not this glamorous <laughs> thing that is like has all this you know appeal to it, and like it's boring. It, it over like the it's such a young science, and really nothing has changed. And so um, these magazines and clickbait, and especially in this day and age of all kinds of social media, people are getting stuff just rapidly. There could be one tiny little like study of five people that has the outcome that they want and it just takes over and so the studies that are long-term and study and that you have to read in a scientific journal they don't get read and so all this misinformation is just pushed at such a rapid level and it's so I I think what happens is people become so desperate and they're so vulnerable because they feel they need to be fixed in order to feel safe in their bodies and safe in their environment. And so it sounds really appealing to um, just, just, if I just try this one thing or if I just do this or avoid this, it sounds really enticing because of the fear behind it. Again everything comes back to safety and I you know I don't my clients if they're listening to this are probably you know I don't know if they're rolling their eyes or cheering but they get <laughs> tired of hearing it all comes yeah. back to safety it all comes back to safety yeah. um, so it all starts with having an awareness of, of of, how these resources are making you feel if they're putting you in a threat response of feeling less than not good enough I'm broken I need to be fixed I'm, I'm, I'm not good enough I don't belong then that should be um uh, um again bring in some curiosity like wait a minute what's the workability of this is this helping who's telling me this who has the right to tell me this you know is this a credible source like really um questioning things and getting um don't take anything at face level especially on social media and like oh my gosh like and cultivate a feed for crying out loud that makes you feel like at least some sense of happy, (laughs) like put put puppies, put like jokes and like all the, like, don't put all this like, oh, you should be doing this. You should be doing that because again, social media, if we use it in the right way, it can be a resource for relaxation. It can be a resource for kind of unwinding. But if it's all stuff that is putting you out of your window then it's like okay it's time to take a look and kind of clean it out a little bit that's the only detoxing you should be doing is your social media feed in my
1: opinion (laughs) great great point yeah like especially in this day and age we're just you know millions and millions pieces of information just thrown at us and a lot of people don't have the time or the capacity to vet through everything right and uh with our brains the way they're set up I, i like how you draw that back to it, and it's so true everything comes back to safety uh and, you know your brains just like porges actually says about like i think i heard him talk and say uh your brains are like the airport security and constantly assessing for is this safe or not for every single piece of information right um so yeah no important to to kind of you know find ways to slow yourself down and not be overwhelmed with that kind of misinformation um and be okay. vetting Those sorts of things about you know who's telling me this and and why are they telling me this and
0: what are they benefiting from because I guarantee you it's not to your benefit.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think
2: that's a great way to look at it. Absolutely. Um, Just before we uh, start wrapping things up and this has been great, we have some rapid fire questions, but before that, uh, I wanted to quickly ask you what the future is holding for you. What do the next couple of years look like? Um, what are you looking to achieve what's next
0: thanks for asking that mike um what's next i um athletically i'll probably pursue keep pursuing um i'm enjoying that 100 kilometer distance and i have a couple races that i have my eyes on um next year um uh, the the big one for now that i'm looking at is the it's called the lavaredo it's an 80 kilometer race in cortina italy and so that's what I'm looking at for June. Um, so the, all my training uh, for the winter will be towards that. Um, and kind of with my career, I know that as I get older, and it's, it's even begun to happen now where my passion for this work has, has grown such that running has taken a step back, because I, I, I just enjoy this work so much. And I know that there's going to come a time when running is going to be more of something that is for, you know, it'll be something that I always do, but the racing will be not as much as I get older and whatnot. And then my, and hopefully my business will continue to grow and I'll continue to evolve and learn. And, um, there's, there's so many brilliant trauma therapists and practitioners out there to, to learn from. And I, I feel really inspired and motivated to keep keep taking in what I can. So that's kind of where, where I see myself going.
1: Awesome. Yeah. That's super, super cool. Like we've been saying, just the work you do is, is amazing. And, you you know, even in terms of your athletic career, That's also super cool and inspiring. So we, we sincerely appreciate, uh, you taking the time to chat with us and, and to give us all this great insight. It's, it's really awesome. Thank
0: thank you. you. Thank you for giving me a platform to to talk about this fun stuff. I I, I like to talk about all day.
2: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I actually have one more question about that. We've talked about how to get into the, to running. And these crazy races, how can we keep up with them? If we wanted to watch or yeah. or see the results, where can we go?
0: Oh gosh, it depends. Every race has a different like. There's not like one like go here.
2: It was like cycling. <laughs> yeah. is it? Yeah. Okay, yeah.
0: okay, yeah. You yeah. But the sport is growing in so much now that more money is going into like and there's drones now that can fly to the top of the mountain. Like the race coverage oh, wow. is becoming so incredible. So. It, depending on what race you want to watch, especially if it's a big one, they're going to have live coverage, live results um, that are specific to that event. So you can either watch it live, like on YouTube, they have that for a lot of races, or they'll have live results. So you just have to go to the race and um, and if you're, you know, I, if you want to follow me in my races, I always put all the links. Or you can watch my husband Tad's takeover. He does a really great job too. <laughs> nice, nice.
1: That's we'll also, I'm sure we'll follow a lot in June. <laughs> Yeah. thank you we'll, no we'll definitely put all your info in so people can check that out and follow along thanks Josh. Um also with uh, you were talking about those nice do not disturb badges um, can Mike and I get one for our 5k when we take yes, a drink? yes yes <laughs> I will make
0: I will make some especially for both of you I'll put your names on it I'll
1: amazing, laminate amazing. it I'll
3: laminate
2: it in case yeah. it's raining <laughs> about the two and a half kilometer mark Mike yeah. and I will just take <laughs> okay. a little nap we'll be good <laughs> I'm going to bring my snowshoes because it's going to start getting cold here <laughs> soon. <laughs> um, should, should we, we'll head over onto these uh, rapid-fire questions. Right. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you, I think you've already mentioned this brand a bunch of times, but let's shout them out again. Your favorite running shoes. Favorite
0: running shoes. The uh, brand is La Sportiva, and probably my go-to is the all-around workhorse, the Akasha 2s. I wear them for, like, everything. Nice,
2: nice. Can we get some of those as well? Don't yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs>
1: The best place to run. What's your take?
0: Oh gosh, I just close to home. I'm gonna say the Chuckanut Mountains here in Bellingham, Washington. Come out and visit sometime. I'll take you.
2: Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. We'll bring our Uh, bikes. Okay, okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's allowed. (laughs) Beer, wine, or mixed drinks.
0: Wine for sure. Uh, uh, I would say Zinfandel or an Amarone. My favorite.
1: Yes. very nice very nice uh best pizza toppings
0: um black olives and banana peppers <laughs>
2: we that, that looks controversial for you josh i like the sound of that <laughs> i'm i'm not a huge fan of olives but okay. I, I like the banana peppers okay. i can deal with that
0: okay we can still be friends
2: <laughs> yeah um we ask this one of every cyclist because we all wear headphones while we're biking. But if you do listen to music while running, what's the music? I
0: uh, don't of? listen to music. I don't. No. Yeah, no. no. Not while doing workouts or races. Um, I listen like on easy days. I do podcasts, but no music. Uh,
1: okay. Yeah. Interesting. Um, best show on Netflix or whatever you're streaming?
0: Oh, right now, uh, somebody feed Phil. Super Uh, heartwarming and just a (laughs) lovable guy. Travels all over, it's fun.
2: Nice, nice. Um, trail or mountain running?
0: (laughs) Oh my, I'm going to say, um... I'm going to say mountain running because a trail could be flat and smooth, and that's not my thing. Like, I like it technical and steep, and so with a mountain, you're sure to get a lot of vertical gain, so I'm going with mountain running.
2: Admirable. (laughs) Yeah, not my choice. (laughs) (laughs) I like the sound of flat.
1: (laughs) Cold or hot conditions when you're running?
0: Oh, man, cold. Cold, Cold. yes, yes. I live in the Pacific Northwest. Like, hot is 60 degrees, and we, we, like, can't handle it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're definitely with you here in uh, in Ontario, up in Canada. Yeah. We we feel that, for sure. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Oh, man. Well no that's uh that does it uh for our rapid fire so right. yeah no just want to say maria again uh we're super grateful for all your amazing insight and uh it's it's been eye opening for sure and uh, I hope people get a lot out of it so thank you so much for taking the time.
0: Thank you. Really thought provoking episode. I appreciate. It. Yeah. Thank you Mike. Thank you Josh.
1: Yeah.